Well, good morning, Cornerstone Church. Uh, it's, I can't really tell you how much of an honor it is to be up here before you this morning. Um, it's a privilege to bring you the Word of God. I don't take this position lightly whatsoever. Um, and with that, as Matt was saying, I really could use your prayer for nerves and just that the Holy Spirit would be speaking through me, that I would be thrusting myself aside and God would speak and not me. Um, I want to thank Cornerstone so much. I want to thank the pastors that have just poured into me, discipled me, and just for giving me this opportunity. You know, so when they, in conversation with the pastors, you know, we, they gave us the liberty, the four guys preaching this weekend, gave us the liberty to preach on whatever passage we wanted. At first, I was like, yes, this is awesome. And I embraced that idea, right? No expectations. And I was like, you know, I'll just preach off, you know, the things that have been, you know, speaking to my heart lately, or I'll, or I'll preach from the, the scriptures that I've been in recently. And as I poured into that, I went back to those scriptures, started meditating on them more, and God was like, eh, eh, nope. So um, being transparent, I can at times in my life, sometimes heavily struggle with anxiety and fear. And that usually resonates when I'm out of control. And God was making it clear, you're not in control, son. So I remember I was uh, at work one day, and I was really having a rough time. I was having a rough day at work, and on my breaks and my lunch break, I was just pouring out to God like, Lord, I have no words to pray. I, I'm not getting anything out of your word. Like, what, what are we doing here? What's going on? And I texted my wife and said, baby, you, you need to pray for me. I'm really I'm having a tough day. I'm having a tough day, a tough time right now. And... I'd say within a couple hours, the Lord gave me words to pray by his spirit, and he quickly revealed to me, or led me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which we will be in tonight, or today. And at first I thought maybe it was just a reminder, right? The common theme many of us may know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is that God's grace is sufficient for us, and that his power is perfected in our weakness. So that theme we are very, some of us are very familiar with. And I thought maybe God's just reminding me of that and then he's going to lead me to something else. But he made it very clear, this is what I was to preach on today. So again, the theme of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is grace. It's his sufficient grace. So what is grace? Grace is incredibly deep. But grace, first and foremost, and primarily, is God's divine favor in receiving salvation. It's a completely and utterly free gift that we have, completely separate from ourselves. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So that's grace at its core. It's a completely free gift. Praise God. So grace, as we are grown, as we were brought into relationship with God, we then learn the multifacetedness of grace, right? It has multiple purposes in God's plan in the Christian's life. So what, what, are, what are some other things that grace provides? Grace provides wisdom. Grace provides empowerment. It's by grace that I can even speak in front of you right now because of the fear and the trembling. <laughs> Grace trains us in righteousness. It purifies us. And grace most certainly helps us endure in suffering. 
Let us pray and as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Father, I come before you, Lord, and I'm humble before you, Lord Jesus. I pray that your words would be speaking today and not mine. I pray, God, that you would open our ears, those who have ears here today, that they would hear the word of God preached and proclaimed in truth, rightfully divided. God, I glorify your name. Open all of our ears today. Open our hearts, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel and that it is completely a free gift that we don't have to do anything to receive it besides submit to you, God, in your power. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So going into verse, uh, to chapter 12, we're going to be in the first 10 verses. <clears throat> Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. So there's many things that we could pull from this passage. There's a lot of things we could maybe do a deep dive into. Maybe we could talk about why is Satan allowed to torment us? Why does God allow that? We could talk about this third heaven, right? What is this third heaven that Paul is talking about? Or what were those things that were unspeakable that he couldn't repeat? And there's a lot of material we could pull out of this. But today, we're going to keep things in context. I've always been drawn to this passage. Um, ever since the Lord brought me to him, I've always been emotionally charged by this passage, and I've been completely reliant on it. His, my weakness is, his grace is sufficient in it, and I have much weakness. So to put things into context, or actually, as I started to do a deep dive into this passage, once the Lord revealed, hey, this is what I want you to preach on, I looked at the first verse, 12.1. I must go on boasting, Paul says, and I'm like, Paul, let's pump the brakes here. I just, in all of my times, I've read this, this passage multiple times, I never caught on to that. I was like, what is he boasting about? And I was like, we, I have to go back because, you know, as many of us can do at times, you know, in times of desperation, we flip open the Bible and if we end up on 12 and you see, I must go on boasting and you're not familiar with the previous passages, you're not going to really know what Paul is really driving to. You know, 
Yes, he's driving to the point of the theme of grace and God's sufficiency. But where is this coming from? Why is he getting there? So let's go back to chapter 11 briefly. And we're going to put this into context. I need to tell you, church, context is so essential when we are reading the word of God. We need to know what God is saying to us. If we are reading, and listen, I'm not saying if you, if you don't read, if you read something out of context here and there, I'm not saying God can't speak through that. But it is essential and important that we are reading and understanding the context in which the author is writing to the reader. And knowing that overall, God is the author who is inspiring these men by the Holy Spirit. You know, reading things in context, it shields us from emotional reading and responding philosophically. A lot of churches can do that nowadays, and it's very dangerous. I want to know what God has to say to me, plain and simple. So what's going on here? So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's addressing false teaching. He's addressing a a major infiltration of false teachers coming into the, to the Corinthian church, and they are, they're fooling them. And what he's saying, or what these false teachers are saying is, not only are they slandering Paul, they're attacking him. They're even, if you go back to chapter 10 even, you could even see how they, they're attacking even his physical appearance. Right? And what they're doing is they are trying to strike his validity as an apostle. And what they're doing is they're claiming to be apostles themselves. So, <laughs> these teachers are said to be from Israel. So, they're Hebrews. And part of their false teaching that they're bringing into the Corinthian church or bringing back in is this, this lie that they need to be back under the law. So, that's, so that's one false teaching that they're bringing in. And, and, and not as, as well as they're, they're boasting in themselves. And we're going to see that in just a couple seconds here. But first, I want to identify... Where's Paul's heart in this? Where is he coming from as we lead to the sufficiency of grace? So first Paul in verse 3 of chapter 11, he identifies his fear. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul had such a deep affection for the Corinthian church. I mean, he wrote like, the most to them. He must have loved them the most. But he really did. He, and he, he expresses it so vividly in his writings to them, how much affection he had for them. So what's happening and what's in danger of happening with these false teachers, he's terrified. He's terrified of. Sorry about that. So what is Paul going to do? He's, he's the minister. He's the pastor of this church, right? He's been writing to them. He's been shepherding them for years. He cares for them abundantly. He addresses his intention now. So going to verses 12 and 13. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? He first of all says, I'm going to continue to serve you as I always have. I'm going to continue in my ministry. I'm going to continue to love you as I always have. But now, in my mission, in his intention, he's going to undermine this false and demonic claim that they are apostles alongside of Paul. And he says, what what are they doing? They're boasting in their own mission. 
They're boasting in their own strengths and their own achievements. This is not the way of a Christian. And Paul sees right through it. And he attributes their authority not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan himself. Paul was very, very afraid. And he knew he had to do something about it. So what's his primary course of action here? So they came into this church with boasting about themselves, about their, their, their appearance and their, and their, spe- and their speech and, and who they were. And he says, you know what? I, they've boasted. Bear with me a little bit and let me boast. And he even calls himself a fool. He says, you know, he actually could go back to chapter 10. And he's been reluctantly approaching this, this, this boasting that he was about to do. He really didn't want to do it. But for the sake of his church, who was dear, to, dear in his heart, he had to. So going down to verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. So what does he say? I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow their pattern. Just as they boasted, I'm going to boast in return. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. So Paul, you know, as, as they have attacked him, they have stricken the validity of his apostleship, apostleship, his true apostleship. They've stricken that in the eyes of the Corinthian church. He needs to regain some of that validity. So he boasts in himself just a little bit. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite too. I'm an offspring of Abraham. And guess what? I'm also a servant of Christ, and I guarantee you I'm a better one. And then everything switches here. Now he begins to boast of his weaknesses and the things that show his weakness. He goes on to talk about his labors and his imprisonments and his persecutions. He talks about the dangers and the toils that he's faced for his entire redeemed life as he's attempted by God's power to expand the gospel. I mean, Paul had a terrible life. But he leaned on the grace of God. And he says in verse 30 of chapter 11, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So now we go into chapter 12, and we go back to, now we know why he's boasting. He's boasting because he wants to dismantle this facade of falseness and deceit that these men have set up in the church. So he follows their pattern. He says, there's nothing to be gained by it, right? Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 12. Why is there nothing to be gained by it? Well, later we find in verse 3 or 4 here, he can't speak of it. What's the purpose of him sharing this vision? That's why he says 14 years ago, in all his writings, he hasn't shared this incredible vision. Vision of what? The third heaven. So real quick, what's the third heaven? Back in those times, they identified the first heaven as the sky, being the atmosphere, the blue sky that we look at. Second heaven is the starry host. Third heaven being God's dwelling place. How do we know this? Well, later he, he also calls it paradise. Paradise is the same word that Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross. You will be with me today in paradise. This is where Christ went. This is where the Father is. This is where God is. He was seeing the final heaven. So the point is not what he saw. The point of sharing this vision is not what he saw. It's not what he heard. The point is, hey, listen, you've had visions, I've had a better one. I've had probably, actually most definitely, the most incredible vision or thing that you've ever experienced. And what does he say? 
I will still boast of my weakness. Paul, you know, something we need to know, you know, he's, he's contrasting. What he's illustrating here is he's, he's contrasting how a true disciple boasts and how a true apostle would boast compared to these false men. He needs to deconstruct what they've done to protect his church. That's what a good pastor, a good leader will do. Paul had an incredible understanding of knowing his position under God. He had an incredible conviction of recognizing his humility. So he boasted in his weakness. You know, a false teacher or a false gospel will always elevate something other than Christ. Always. A true gospel and a true disciple will always elevate Christ above all else, no matter the cost. With Paul's life, all his sufferings, did he really even have a reason, a worldly reason to keep following Christ? Not really. But he knew, he had a heavenly mindset, and he knew his humble position. And that's my first point today. Recognizing our humble position under a completely sovereign God. Verse 5 in chapter 12, Paul says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. What's he saying? I will boast of the man that's in Christ. I will boast of this man that's been taken up into heaven, that is, that is covered in the blood of Christ, that's been redeemed by the gospel. I'll boast of that man because he has nothing to do with that man. It's all the grace of God upon his life. But for his own behalf, he will not boast. Again, further illustrating that divide of true discipleship and false discipleship. So God, we pick up in verse 7, start talking now, it starts to get a little more familiar, this thorn that Paul had. Verse 7 says, "So So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So as he recognizes his humble position, God even knew in his sovereign plan, after this vision, you're going to need even more of it. You're going to need more humility. And Paul began to realize more and more in his walk with the Lord how much how, how important it was to recognize his humble position. See, if we are going to understand the depth of God's grace and how God maneuvers it in our walk with him as we mature with him, if we're to truly understand its depth, we need to be coming to the end of ourselves daily if possible. See, the Christian in their walk with Christ will increasingly boast of their weaknesses, coming to the understanding that we aren't used because we are something, but we're used because we are nothing but we are made something by the Spirit of God that lives and breathes within us. Romans 8.11 says, the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. That should be a pretty awesome thing to hear. Excuse me. A true disciple of Christ desires this above all else, God getting all the glory. We are removing ourselves from the spotlight. We are placing God in the spotlight because this is what the scripture says. He is worthy of all praise. This is a true disciple of Christ's desire. It's absolutely critical to realize if we are to grow and experience experience grace in its depth. 
This is important. We must realize the great necessity of coming to God in a manner of confession, confessing the very reality that we are nothing apart from him and we can do nothing apart from him. I'm sorry to break that to you. How do we know this? John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we know from that passage that I would actually cease to exist without God. So if you're ever getting puffed up, if you ever think you're on track and you got, you got life by the horns, let that scripture derail you. You couldn't even breathe without him. John chapter 15, verse 5 Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's right there in the scripture. We can do nothing apart from Christ. We can't bring glory to God without, God, without Christ working within us by his, by his spirit and his power. We can't do good works. Our good works without him are filthy rags. This should bring us to a place of absolute desperation and humility as we magnify a wonderful and great God. And as we do that, transitioning into our second point here, which might get a little heavy, how does it make us feel when this great, sovereign, powerful God says, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna have weakness? And to Paul, no, my grace is sufficient. How do we react to that? So our second point here is, and it's very important that we do this, again, trying to understand the depth of God's grace, that we would identify our attitude in the midst of our own suffering and weaknesses. So I'm going to ask a series of reflective questions. I pray that it would bring you to a place of deep self-reflection. <clears throat> so when trial comes in, when weakness is revealed, when suffering is pressing down on us, hard. How do we react? Do we run to God's word or do we run away from it? Do we forsake God? Do we hold him in contempt? Do we ask those questions of, well, if he's such a good God, why would he allow this to happen? Do we run from his word and his promises? Do we question his love for us? Do we cease to pray for him? What do we do? Because it's really not the question of if we do it or not, it's when. To one degree or the other, we're all going to question God at times in our life. We all have this flesh that God is helping us conquer. Critical question to ask ourselves is do we remain there? And this is where we can identify as, you know, where our maturity is. Do we stay in that place? Do we walk away from him for years? God has grace for that as well. But where are we in those situations? We need to search ourselves right now and say, well, how do I react? And some sufferings and trials are much harsher than others, but we know that we can trust a God who is completely sovereign and in complete control. James chapter one says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Romans chapter five talks about rejoicing and suffering. I wanna clear something up real quick. What does that mean? Count it all joy when you meet trials. Rejoice in suffering. To the world, those things are opposing thoughts. That doesn't make any sense. So what is he saying? As a Christian, is it saying that we should put this fake smile on and that we should 
you know, press on and have this almost this spiritual euphoria about us. Like, oh, everything's great. Lost my job again. It's sweet. And that's, that's, that's the least of it, right? Trials in this life can become very heavy. A sick child, maybe a tragedy, a loss in the family, persecution. So what did count it all joy mean? How do we rejoice in that? We rejoice in that by trusting in God's promises. Romans 8.28 says that he works for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. That's a promise of God. He will always work for our good. There's no if, there's no but. He works for the good of those who love him. Do you love Christ today? He works for your good no matter what he's allowing in your life. We need to have an eternal mindset. We can't be focused on the, on the flesh. We can't be focused on the material things of this world. Does it happen? Of course it happens. Here's the final question. Whose glory do we value more? God's or ours? So many times in my life I value my own, my own comfort. I'm not willing to forsake my comfort. I'm not willing to forsake my, my job or the finances that I'm making, or whatever it might be. I want what I want. But when we are submitting to God in his word, then we can see that God is, he's going to, by by allowing suffering and trial, he's going to allow you to glorify him to the maximum. That's what this is about. That's what suffering's about, and that's why he allowed Paul to have this weakness. He says no in verse 9. He pleads with God. He pleads with him. He says, take this. And I find this very interesting. I mean, Paul, again, for much of his redeemed life, has suffered immensely, greater than any of us could probably ever imagine. But he still has this, this, this stitch in his side, right? This thorn. And it's weighing him down. I, I, you know, you'd think by now, everything that he's been through, that this would just pale in comparison. What's this about? He's being afflicted heavily. And as a man, he makes it clear, I don't want this, God. And we don't know what the thorn was. We don't know if it was something of the mind, maybe a mental attack, maybe a physical attack. We don't necessarily know what it is. And again, it's not about what it is. We know Paul didn't want it, but we do know God wanted it. And here's our, right, part of identifying that attitude, Paul's response to God saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response is awesome. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's awesome. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. I mean, this is powerful. He says, okay, God. Now, we don't know if he got there in an instant or maybe it was a couple years or a couple months. We're not sure. It seems like he got there pretty quick because he desired God getting the glory over himself because he had a heavenly mindset. So how does God bring great and powerful things and he's glorified further by allowing suffering? I want us to think of an example, a present example. I want us to consider maybe what's happening over in Afghanistan. Pretty heavy stuff. As many of you may know, the Taliban is rising to power swiftly. They have no one to oppose them, and they are killing at will and trying very hard to execute their laws. Two facts about Afghanistan. 
I didn't know this at all. Did you know that they are the second fastest growing church on the planet? Another fact, did you know that they're um, number two on something called the world's watch list, which is a list that comprise, is comprised of uh, countries where it describes how difficult it is to be a Christian in that country. More words or less, how heavily these countries are persecuted. Number two on that list. So they're number two in the growth of, God, of uh, the growth of the church, and they're number two in persecution. This doesn't make any sense. Except we know that God is moving. And we know that this is not the first time God has done that. Acts chapter 8, God is using his tool, right? No other than our author today, Paul, to ravage the church, then Saul. Ravage the church, to persecute them, to imprison them, to kill them. And they're what? They're dispersed. And this was all for the purpose of, of confirming Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 where he says they will go through Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Paul, or see, God allowed the persecution, the murdering of his church for the expansion of the gospel because God is infinite, right? And we need to draw near to him in our suffering. We need to draw near to him and, and trust him completely. And he's working for our good and that I am not idolizing this world. I look to him as my one and only God. I worship him only, and the way he wants to do things, I will do. And that's a lot easier said than done, and that's why we need each other so desperately. So the purpose of grace. What is the purpose of grace? It's a progression. I've gone through that to simply uh, summarize. We have to come to a place of humility under God. We have to understand that he is giving us the strength to endure through the fiery trials so that we can get to the point where we are growing in him and because we are out of the spotlight in our humility and he's in the spotlight because we're putting him as number one in our life, we are able to see through those trials his vivid nature, right? or we're able to see more vividly his nature and who he is, which allows us to trust in him more, which allows his grace to work through us more. 2 Corinthians 9.8, excuse me, one more point. As we walk through this progression, we realize that it is grace that empowers us to do all things. That's a very blanket statement. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's another promise. His grace will abound in everything that he desires you to do, not what you want to do. And sometimes it's going to be the way he wants it, or it's always going to be the way he wants it. Sometimes it's not going to always match up with what we want. So how do we become content, as Paul said? How do we become glad in our sufferings? Well, we have to understand the movement of God's grace in our life. We have to trust in him in those heavy, heavy times. So no more blanket statements, right? What is grace besides the apex of grace being the means of salvation? <clears throat> Titus 2.11 says that grace is the trainer of righteousness. 
It trains us. It purifies us. It's by God's grace that he carries us along and makes us more holy, and he sanctifies us. Why? So that we can be better used by him and so that we're a living, walking testimony and not just a dead person saying, hey, this is what I claim, but you don't live it. No, the spirit of God and the grace of God is what empowers you to live a life of holiness. Grace is also, speaking in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is addressing Timothy, who's having a rough time leading the church of Ephesus, and he says, be strengthened by the grace of God. That word strengthened translates to be empowered, to be empowered. So not only are we empowered to be righteous, we're empowered in every single work that we will ever do unto his name and for his glory. It's not by our strength. We have to relinquish ourselves. And lastly, grace is lavished upon us to give us all wisdom. And there's many more aspects of grace that I don't believe we will ever truly fully understand. But these three, lastly, being wisdom that's lavished upon us. Ephesians 1.8 talks about that. And what is this wisdom? So as we are made more righteous into the image of Christ, and as we are empowered to do his good work for the expansion of his kingdom, we have wisdom of how to discern what the mystery of God is in each moment and also overall. That the mystery of God is that he wants all to come to salvation. I'm going to end with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 11, verses 11 and 12. I believe this sums up a lot of what we've been talking about today. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's unpack this really quick and I'm gonna close in prayer. So to this end, he says in Thessalonians, what end? So quick, very brief context. The end that Paul is talking about is when Jesus returns for his church and when he comes to wage war on the earth. That's the end he's speaking of. He says, okay, to this end, I'm going to pray for you. What's he praying for? He's praying that we would be made worthy of God's calling. So there's that reflection of righteousness, right? We're being made righteous. And that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. There's that empowerment that we were talking about. And he continues, so why? So in wisdom, right, I really believe this, when God matures you and continues to grow you in your walk with him, a huge aspect of wisdom is understanding that all things are for his glory. I didn't understand that early in my walk with the Lord, and I, many days I don't act like it. But in my heart, I know that God and all things that he allows is for his glory. What's in it for us, huh? God gives all the glory. <laughs> it says, you are also in him. Think of him as the perfect slave master, right? He frees you, and you want to stay beside him because he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's so good to you. Think about him as the most wonderful and kind father that you could ever think of, plus that, plus some. He's perfect. How are we glorified in him? Everything that is his is ours. And he is always, always remains superior, of course. Picking up again in Thessalonians, 
It sums it up, and this sums up this sermon. All of this is done, right? By according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every work of faith, every moment of empowerment, every stepping stone of sanctification in our lives, every increase in wisdom and understanding that God gets all the glory, it's all given to us freely by the grace of God, just as salvation is given to us freely. This should all really point us back to the apex of our faith, that Christ alone died for us, that we did nothing to achieve it. And that's the reflection of this this message today. It's not in us. It's not how hard you train or how much you practice. Yes, those things are beneficial, but it's God's power that's gonna be perfected in you to accomplish all things in his will. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much, God. I know so many people here love you, we adore you, we praise you, because you are the King of kings, and you have lavished on us everything that we will ever need to accomplish your will, Lord, to expand your kingdom. God, I pray today that your spirit would empower us to have a heavenly mindset, an eternal mindset, and not a mindset that's fixated on the world and the things of this world. They're so fleeting. You, Lord, are eternal, and you, Lord, there is complete satisfaction. God, I pray that these words today spoke to our hearts and that we would take them, we would meditate on them, and that you would transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen.